With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Josh Peck here. It is good to be back. I hope you are all enjoying your 2022. Uh, Apologies it has been so long since I've been um, uploading anything. I'm getting back into the groove of it now, but I was on a brief hiatus. Um, A lot of it was we were dealing with the last part of Nathan's cancer treatment and, uh, you know, our, our son... Uh, eight years old. For those of you who don't know, he's been battling uh, leukemia for the uh, T cell leukemia for the past three years um, since he was five. We were dealing with the last bit of his cancer treatment, and right after that, there was um, there was kind of a scare that his cancer might be coming back. His lymph nodes were swelling up uh, the same way that they did when he was first diagnosed, but. Good news, it turned out it was uh, just actually one lymph node that had blown up So, um, because his body was trying to fight off an infection and apparently that that just, that lymph node wasn't cooperating with the other one. So um, the doctors were able to remove it and he's, he's fine now. Uh, well, actually, as of today, he has broken out into a rash. So uh, Christina, uh, his mom, my lovely wife, she's at the hospital with him now just seeing what it is we think it's probably hand foot and mouth so uh but the the issue is uh, because nathan's been in treatment for so long he basically has no immune system anymore so his body is like for the first time really learning how to deal with illnesses and stuff so he'll probably be sick for a while um i guess the doctor said it could take anywhere from nine to 18 months of uh, just him getting sick with everything before his immune system gets built built back up. But uh, Christina is um, like a specialist with natural medicine and stuff, so she's going to be able to boost his immune system a lot faster than that. So I'm thinking maybe two or three months, but we'll see. So anyway, that is why there was a hiatus. Um, I really wanted to spend some time just with the family, especially with Christmas break and New Year and all that. Um, so, but... Uh, everything is, everything's going great on, uh, on our end here. And we are, um, really happy to be back. I'm, I'm happy to be producing content again for you guys. Uh, so I really appreciate you guys sticking with us, uh, through all of that. And of course, a big thank you to our other hosts, Gary Wayne, Brian Melvin, everybody, uh, Mike Spalding, everybody at Daily Renegade that has been producing consistent content, um, greatly appreciate it. So, uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and get a membership at dailyrenegade.com and you'll get all of this, um, all this content uh, in full instead of just some of the previews that we do. But anyway, today I want to I ask you something. Imagine that you're an Israelite during, um, during the, the Torah law period. Uh, you know, a- anywhere from like Moses to between Moses and Christ. Let, let's say that you're you're observing the law like you're supposed to, but one of your Israelite friends says, you know, that whole law of Moses thing is figurative. You're, it's not meant to be taken literally, obviously. You would think that that's absolutely ridiculous, right? <laughs> of course. Well, imagine, you know, now being a Christian, we follow the law of Christ. 
can you imagine, actually probably some Christians do try to say this, but can you imagine trying to uh, honestly say or, or, or e- e- accept this notion that the law of Christ is just figurative and that we don't really have to follow it and it doesn't, you know, it means other things and it can kind of mean whatever you want it to mean. Of course, that'd be re- that's ridiculous too. Um, well, what about in the future? We know that there's a millennium coming. And did you know that there's actually something called the law of the temple? And it's the whole process on how the millennial temple is going to run. Now, uh, what's strange is a lot of people today say that that whole section in the book of Ezekiel, which we're going to look at, but between chapters 40 and 48, that all of it's figurative. Even though it goes into great detail about the dimensions of the temple, there are people that say that that is all figurative. All of the uh, ordinances put in place, all of the all the things that people are supposed to do, all figurative. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe that um, every temple in the past has been literal and real. And I don't think that any future temple would be figurative. There, there isn't any reason for it to be. Um, now there are, that does present problems that we're going to get into a little bit today, but if you're brand new to this topic, the book of Ezekiel is, is really fantastic. So the whole book, the whole 48 chapters can, can really be split up like this. And, and it's a beautiful book, the way that it's composed in the beginning of it, um, chapters one through 24, you have the judgment on Judah. And at the very end, from 33 to 38, you got blessing on Judah. Um, so in, Eze- in Ezekiel 1 through 3, that's he's commissioned, his mouth is closed. But then in Ezekiel 33, he's recommissioned, and now his mouth is opened. It's a judgment and blessing uh, type of book, and the middle of it, the thing that balances the whole thing together, chapters 25 through 32, which is the judgment on the nations. Um, you can look up Charles Dyer notes on Ezekiel for more on that. It's, uh, it's it, but it's a phenomenal book. Now, what what's strange is everything in the book prior to, um, well, except for some of the visions, some people will argue that, but pretty much everything in the book people agree was literal. There was there's a literal Ezekiel. There is a um, you know, literal things that happened. There was a literal captivity. There was a literal Babylon, all that. Uh, And the judgment on Judah was literal as well. So why then would it jump to being figurative when it gets to the blessing parts? Like that, that doesn't make sense to me. To to me, to be consistent, we should take the entire thing uh, literal, not woodenly literal where you know you you don't allow for any poetry but no nobody nobody takes it like that nobody actually takes it that literal that whole argument i think is a straw man that uh allegorists will use against literalists but anyway so that's how the book of ezekiel is kind of broken up and that's why i I don't believe that the end part where it talks about the millennial temple what i believe is the millennial temple i don't believe that that is figurative at all um in the very beginning of the book of ezekiel uh, the glory of God departs from Judah, uh, you know, chapters one through 24. But then, um, the later part, 33 through 48, when the blessings, the, the glory returns. So if the glory literally departed, shouldn't we expect the gro- glory to literally return? Um, so to get into some of this, um, how do we know 
that this future time period is a literal kingdom. Uh, sometimes when people talk about the millennial reign of Christ, they, they talk about it in really figurative terms, or they'll say that we're in the kingdom now or something like that. Um, what if the kingdom is just this figurative thing that really means the church? Well, we know that the church is not a nation, right? I mean, uh, the Bible even, it's not a nation. We're not like a nation of people. We're, we're peculiar. We're strange. Uh, so in that sense, like we're, we're the church. We're not like a nation or a, a government, governmental body. We're not a, uh, well, we're not a kingdom in that sense. And so when we look at the vision of Daniel, most of you guys are probably familiar with this, but, uh, you know, the statue that has all the empires, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, when we look at that structure, every single one of those kingdoms were literal kingdoms in exactly the way that we would think of it. Um, so you have the head of gold that was uh, the world power of Babylon from, I believe, 608 uh, to 539 BC. My notes are a little hard to read here. Um, then you have the chest and arms of silver, which is probably Media Persia, and that's 539 to 331, I believe. Uh, stomach and thighs of brass, Greece, and then you have the legs and feet of uh, iron, Rome, and then the clay, which is a future thing. But every single one of those, are they're all literal kingdoms. They, they existed, they had actual power, there were citizens, there was a government, there were real buildings, you know, there were real literal kingdoms. Why then would we think that the stone that comes and crashes uh, into the statue and knocks it down, and then this this uh, city spreads across the world, or this kingdom, why would we think that that is somehow figurative or that somehow means the church today? Because again, we're not a nation. All of these are nations. Uh, and uh, we're, we're not a kingdom in that in that way. We're the church. We're the bride of Christ. So this that's another reason that I think this idea of the, the future kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ is, is literal. And it's not something that we should be trying to bring in today or anything. We're, we're the church. We have our role. We have our place. We were put into this time. We were born into this time. Uh, God wants us to be here for a reason. You know, God, God made you the way he made you for a reason. If you're a church age Gentile, <laughs> then he made you that way for a reason. So, um, Trying to bring in a future thing or even bring back past things into the church, I think kind of it gets in the way of what the church really is supposed to be. It's this beautiful thing that Jesus did. I mean, it's the bride of Christ. It's it's not the law of Moses. It's not the law of the temple, which we're going to get into in a minute. Um, it's it's its own beautiful, wonderful thing, as a bride should be. You're, you know, if you're going to take on a bride, your bride should be unique among all others. Uh, so that, anyway, going to that Daniel vision is what makes me think that this kingdom it must be literal. I don't see any other way around it. Um, I want to quote Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, talking about literal and figurative. Because again, there's a big push today to say that all the kingdom stuff is, is figurative and it's stuff that we should be bringing in now or something. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now let me stop there. Was that literally fulfilled? Yes. What about the next part? And the government will rest on his shoulders. Now that is a future thing. That's, that's going to happen in the future. But this is all one verse. 
This is, this is all within like one sentence. Why would it be literal in the first part and then completely figurative in, in the next? If the first part is literal, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Then the second part, and the government will rest on his shoulders, that should be literal. Now, again, what allegorists will do is they, they'll straw man and say, well, if you're going to be consistent, you, you should think that the government will literally rest on his shoulders, like will literally be up there and he's carrying them around. That is a straw man. That, that's wooden literalism that nobody, no one, no serious scholar actually uh, would, would, would adopt that view. No, no one has that view. So what it shows is a profound misunderstanding of what literalism actually is uh, in ignorance. And actually, I think that it, it, for an allegorist to say that, I think it actually shows that I don't think they're as passionate about allegorism as they think they are. When you're, when you're really passionate about trying to find what is true, um, you, you search out all the available options really thoroughly. And you, you become you become really well versed in all of those. So years ago, uh, when I was trying to figure out the whole rapture thing, I didn't know I, I didn't know what it was. Didn't know uh, which view was correct. I just knew of like the four basic views. So I looked into every single one of those, and it took a long time. And uh, I, I you, you have to almost like become an expert in each view to find where the holes are, and to see what's more consistent. And um, when, when I did all that, that then I, I landed on uh, pre-tribulation rapture. But I don't need to use straw men to um, um, defend my point. You know, I, I don't have to use straw men. I, I can just lay out a biblical case. So when I hear an allegorist like, say stuff like that, it, it just shows me that I think they're more interested in themselves appearing to be smart or witty or clever than they are in what their view actually is and and why their view rather than my view is correct i mean if they're gonna hold to that i mean if they're gonna say that they should be at least well versed in the in the literalist view so when, when they when they say something like that i it, it it tells me that they're just not taking it seriously not all allegorists are like that but um a few are so you know if somebody comes at you like that don't don't say oh well i guess i gotta throw away literalism that's not what literalism is no one thinks that okay uh so the first part of the verse is literal second part of the verse should be literal too uh now what about the rest uh verse seven there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So this, if the first part of Jesus' ministry was all fulfilled literally, and it was, it stands to reason the second part, the, the millennial reign will be as well. Um, now I want to look at real quickly Daniel 2, 44 through 45. Uh, because this is one of the passages that people will look at and get kind of confused about. So, Daniel 2. I should have had this up already. My, apologize, my apologies. All right. 44 and 45. So, this is talking about um, 
the statue and the stone that comes down, it says, and in the days of these kings, the, 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 this is the iron that doesn't mix with clay. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all the other all, all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So it's going to be greater than Rome. It's going to be greater than uh, Greece. It's going to be greater than all that. Uh, and it shall stand forever. Now, I want, to, I want to say again, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. So would it really make sense to say the kingdom is figurative, but the kingdoms is literal? That seems so confusing. And I, I, I really don't think that God would offer his truth that way because it's, it's just confusion. Um, and, okay, so it says the kingdom shall not be left to other people. So as literal as those other kingdoms are, were, the future millennial kingdom will be just as literal, just as real. It'll be on the earth, uh, and, and we'll get to experience that. Um. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. All right, so um, there are some people that try to say all of Daniel has been fulfilled and even this part is future. But how do we know... How do we know that Daniel 2, 44 through 45 is the future? Um, well, this stone, this kingdom, you know, people will say that that's the church and that that that, that kingdom is operating now as the church. How, how do we know that, that, that that's not the church and that it's actually a future millennial kingdom? Well, Christianity did not suddenly fill the whole earth. I mean, when that rock hits, it seems pretty immediate, doesn't it? Rock hits, statue crumbles, big city. Um, but Christianity did not suddenly fill the whole earth. It took a long time. It, it's not even, it hasn't even really filled the earth now. Not everybody's a Christian. Uh, Christ did not destroy Rome uh, himself. So, I mean, if, if that was figurative for the church, you would expect Christ to be the one that smashed Rome, but, but he didn't. Um, not yet, anyway. Um, there have been no 10 simultaneous kings in the time of Christ in the way that is described in uh, Daniel 2, 44 through 45. Christ was not the smiting stone. Christ did not destroy all the kingdoms of the world because it said that that kingdom is going to devour all other kingdoms. What kingdom has Christianity actually ever taken over fully? Not a single one, right? Because we're not a nation, <laughs> Is there a Christian country? There might be a country that is predominantly Christian or that has a lot of Christians in it, but is there an actual theocratic Christian country? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and never has been. Not a single one. Yet if this was to be believed as the church, there should be there should be that should be normal. There should be that all over the place. Um and the church is not a political kingdom. Uh, we're, we're not a political, like a government. We're not a political kingdom. We're the bride of Christ. Yet this kingdom uh, that Daniel's describing is a political kingdom. Uh, if you want more information on that, you can go to the Bible Knowledge Commentary uh, by uh, J. Dwight Pentecost. It's got some excellent stuff. Okay, and we also see Old Testament prophets describe the kingdom. 
So Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, 11, 6 through 9, 65, 17 through 25. Um, I'm not going to read all those because we're going to look a lot into Ezekiel, but if you want the references, you can look those up. But when we read through that, we find out Jerusalem is the center of the uh, world uh, spiritual and political authority in that time. We don't see that today. There's perfect justice. Uh, Jesus is ruling with, with a rod of iron, so when somebody steps, steps out of line, it seems like it's dealt with pretty immediately instead of the world that we live in now, where if somebody sins against God, they might go through their whole life and not get judged until the, the afterlife, you know? Um, so uh, so there will be a more, a more immediate justice. Uh, world peace, peace in the animal kingdom, universal uh, spiritual knowledge. So there's a lot of things that are described from the Old Testament prophets about the future millennial kingdom that you 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 can't really say about the church. And if you if you really need if you need proof that the that the millennium prophecies are going to be fulfilled literally, just look at all of the other prophecies that have already been fulfilled. They have been fulfilled literally. Um. So let's get into Ezekiel, because that's, that's where this whole thing really starts. I'll start in Ezekiel 40. We, and I'm not going to read all eight chapters, but we are going to look at a lot of things. Let me see how we're doing on time here. Um, all right, so just starting in verse 1 of chapter 40. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, and the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day... The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In the visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it, toward the south, was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. Now, what's really interesting about this measuring thing, I actually think... This measuring thing is a way to really, this isn't all it is. I mean, they want the actual measurements, but this is a way to really root into reality that this is real. This is a, a an actual real structure that you can measure and you can go in and out of, and it's a real thing. It's, it's not symbolic for something else. But there are people that will go through this whole thing and they'll say like every number means something and every sacrifice means something else and everything basically means every uh, something else because they can't imagine, apparently they can't, imagine God, Jesus coming back and setting up a, an earthly kingdom. And that, that's, that's honestly really sad. I mean, no matter what the truth is, I want the truth. Like if, if the allegorist stuff was true, then fine. You know, whatever the truth is, that's what I want. Uh, I don't really have a preference. I just want the truth, whatever that truth is. And to me, it, it just seems really sad to not have that not not be able to have that expectation of Jesus' return and, and this wonderful knowledge to know that you have a future in that millennial kingdom, in that very real, literal millennial kingdom. You have a role in that, and you have a role in the very real new heavens and earth as well. And uh, so to me, to me, it's like, I, I think those people are really missing out, and they, they should give the literal approach a, another try. But, um, but you know... It, Really, we all should be praying for each other. So we, we should be praying for those people for sure, that God shows them the truth, and we should hope that they pray that for us as well. Because, um, again, if we're wrong about something, we want to know that because we should want the truth more than just whatever we prefer the truth to be, right? Um, 
All right. Uh, verse four. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Would God tell Ezekiel to do that? Leading him to believe that this is a real place. This is, this is a literal thing that's happening. Would God lead Ezekiel to believe that and, and actually lead Israel to believe that if it was just figurative and it meant something else? Now, the Bible does use figurative language, but it, it always um, it defines itself. So like the animals of Daniel and the statue of Daniel and you get that in Revelation. I mean, it, 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 it identifies itself what it is. The, the Bible will tell you what the symbols mean. So it's not like it's some mysterious thing and who, who can really know. Like, it's not like that at all. Uh, any symbolism that the Bible use, uses will actually have a definition in the Bible. You'll be able to find out what that means. So would God tell Ezekiel to declare to the house of Israel everything you see uh, if it wasn't real or if it was figurative for something else? Verse 5, now there, now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple, and the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a hand, hand breadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. Oh, this is something, too, that you got to be careful of when people do like, actual measurements and they try to make graphs and stuff of what this looks like. Uh, because... Notice it says, in the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, each being a cubit and a hand breadth. So the cubits that this man is, is using isn't a cubit, it's a cubit and a hand breadth. That's the cubit that he's using. So it, it, it's a little bigger. Um, then he went to the gateway, which faced east, and he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, and the... Other threshold was one rod wide. Each gate chamber was one rod long and one rod wide. Between the gate chambers was a space of five cubits, and the threshold of the gateway by the vestibule of the inside gate was one rod. I'm not going to read all of this because it's really descriptive, but this is so descriptive that you can, and many people have done this, you can draw out a really detailed uh, blueprint of this building. Um, the only thing that sometimes people get, get confused about is that cubit and the hand breadth thing. But besides that, you can, it's, it's a literal thing. You can put it on blueprints. Everything fits exactly where it's supposed to. Nothing overlaps or anything weird. Um, but it's so detailed. You can know the measurements of literally every part of this, of this temple. Um, I don't. It just seems ridiculous that that would be figurative. I mean, and, and like I said, I'm not going to read all of it. I wanted to read a little just so you could get a, a sense of how descript and um, how descript these measurements are. Precise. That's what I was looking for. Um, so let's move ahead a little bit. Where are we at? 26 minutes. Okay, we'll, we'll do this one. Um, starting in chapter 43, verse 1, it says, Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. Oh, by the way, do you know why the entrance of the, the temple, do you know why the temple always faced, faced uh, east um, in the tabernacle and stuff? I, I always wondered that. I was like, why? It seems like it should like face north, maybe, or south or something. Like, It's weird, sideways like that. It's actually not weird. Our modern perception is weird. 
um, it actually makes perfect sense because the sun rises in the east. So the first light that they see of the day comes from the east. So that that's why they point everything there. So I, I thought that was really interesting. But uh, anyway, verse 2, And behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And the sun shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river, river Kabar. And I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate, which faces towards the east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is all very real. Um, this is all literal. This, this, this happened. And this is a structure that actually exists. And I really want to get this in, in your heads because I know a very stressful thought is I don't know how to even think about the afterlife because it's so abstract and ethereal and I can't make sense of it. That's, that's an unnerving thought. And that's not what the afterlife is like. Um, I used to think that for years because I, I just, I was listening to a lot of bad teachers that were telling me stuff like this is symbolic. And if all of that is symbolic stuff, that's horrifying. I mean, I, to me, I, I, I can't imagine finding any kind of peace in that. Like, just the, the afterlife is a complete mystery, basically, and you have no clue what's going to happen because everything is symbolic and it can mean anything. Uh, it, that, there's, to me, there's no reassurance in that. What, what I think, given the character of God, given the nature of God, I think he's just telling it like it is. I think this this is just this is what this temple is like. Um, now this is in the millennium, but but still for us we're going to be in glorified bo bodies. That is a type of afterlife for us, but it, that doesn't mean that we're going to be like these ghosts wisping around in the clouds. Like we're we're, we're going to have actual physical bodies. Now they're not going to age or decay or get sick or anything, but we're going to have physical bodies. Um, and and. This is a physical place we'll be able to see. Um, and I think that's what God is trying to tell us. And there is reassurance in that because we can identify with it. You know, I mean, it's going to be a lot greater than the life we're living now, obviously, than, than life on this earth. But we know what living in reality is like. You know, we, we, so we can kind of, we can imagine, man, if this earth was better... You know, if Jesus was here right now ruling and reigning, um, we can literally imagine what, what kind of what that would be like. We can, we can, I mean, it's going to be greater than we can imagine, but we can at least identify with it. It's something, it's something familiar. You know, it's something that, you know, there's going to be the earth, there's going to be ground, there's going to be sky, there's going to be buildings. It's, it's a, a real physical place. Um, that to me is a lot more comforting because it's like, I get that, that, it's going to be better, and I get it, but at least, you know, I I understand that. <laughs> I understand it to a point. There's, uh, the only surprises that are going to come are going to be nothing but good, and, and, it's, and it's going to branch off from just this reality that's actually, literally, physically real. So, I think there's a lot of comfort in that. I mean, the, the afterlife is a real, solid thing, you know? It's, it's going to be different in some ways, but um, now if we die today and go to heaven, that's that's a little different because the millennium's not here yet. But even still, uh, there's other places in the Bible that talk about the, the heavenly Jerusalem, and it does the same thing with the measurements. It goes crazy with the measurements. And it's telling you that that is a real place that exists, 
even heaven. It's not this ethereal, wispy, abstract thing that you have no chance at even processing or being able to imagine on this side. Um, it's not like that. We're not going to like morph into some other like completely unknown form of consciousness that we can't wrap our heads around. It's, it's not like that at all. It's, I think it's going to kind of be like this just without sin or death. And, uh, and it's going to be how it was always supposed to be. I mean, God created us the way he created us for a reason. He, He created our bodies to be able to experience the world that he created for us. So I don't think that it's going to be vastly different when, um, uh, you know, when the millennium comes, because he, he's 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 going to get his purposes fulfilled, and the original purpose was for us to be on the earth in a very physical and real way. Um, so I'm going to show you. I'm going to read here what um, God says to Ezekiel. Uh, this is 43 verse six. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me, and he said to me, "Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever." If that is figurative, that is almost like a cruel joke. I mean, th- th- this is fellowship with God is what the Israelites really craved fellowship with God. And so when they got it, when they went into Babylonian captivity, I mean, that's, they have no temple. I mean, they, they're like complete separation. So the comfort is supposed to be, look, you guys are in captivity now, but I, you know, God, this is God. I I have a plan for you and you are going to fulfill all the promise. You are going to have all the promises that I promised you. You're going to fill all the roles that I promised you, the, uh, priestly nation, all that stuff, um, that's going to get fulfilled. But you need to hear how good this could have been had you just listened to me, because you could have had this now, you know. And and you'll you'll see that. But it's it's not to make them feel bad. It's to tell it's to tell them like, look, God loves you. Obey Him. Do what He said. He knows best, and He loves you. This the, there is some amazing things He wants to do for you. And yeah, you could have you could have maybe had that earlier, or you know, maybe maybe not. Maybe it was just maybe it was just to say this is what I have for you in the future. So, you know, you, you should listen to me because I got wonderful things for you. But um, but that's the idea. So we we get that here. He says, um, then I heard him speaking from the temple that I will dwell in the midst of children of Israel forever. So imagine an Israelite in that state and they get, they get this word from Ezekiel and they're reading it and they're comforted. But then somebody tells them, Oh, you know, that doesn't really mean that That, that's figurative for something else, for some abstract thing, love in your heart or something, you know, uh, that would be crushing. You mean this isn't real? Like this isn't actually what it says. Like that would be, that would be crushing. And I don't, I don't think that God would deliver a message to his children like that. I could be wrong, but I just, I don't see it. You know, I mean, the, the more you read uh, throughout the Bible and to get a sense of the character of God, you know, the, the kinds of things that he does, the decisions he makes, I mean, he has consistent character. He's not just going to switch on us um, and not tell us and, and we're just left to figure it out for ourselves. It's that, I don't know, it's just ridiculous. And uh, he goes on, no more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, nor they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. 
When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. That sounds like um, the tribulation, right? That sounds like Armageddon. I've consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me. Remember in Revelation, uh, after Armageddon and all the nations are, that came against him are destroyed, uh, the birds come and feast on the carcasses of the kings. Well, that's why I think that this is, this is what the Lord's referring to. Um, he's saying, I took care of all this. All these um, sinful kings, you know, everybody who came against me, they're all dead. I've consumed them in my anger. That's what he's saying. And now I brought this millennial temple. So then what does he, what does he say in verse 10? So a after this stuff, what, what happens? Well, remember the setting is, is um, the millennial reign. Verse 10, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. Again, it's not only to make them feel bad and rub it in their face, but it's like a, like a call to repentance. It's like you need to be ashamed of what you did so you won't ever do it again because this is what God has for you. You know, it's like, it's like with your kids. I, I've, I've done this before. I'm sure you have too, where you, you kind of have in your mind, you know, I, I might like to take the kids out today. You know, I might want to do something. And then, and then one of the kids does something like really bad and uh, the kid didn't know that you had this plan, but then you tell him. And why do you tell him? Not just to make him feel bad, but so that he'll never do it again. You say, look, I, I was planning on taking you to get some ice cream later. It was going to be this big surprise, but I'm not doing it now. That, that was, that was awful. Uh, you can't do that kind of stuff. You should be ashamed. And so then maybe the kid will think, oh, I got to behave because mom and dad actually want to do nice things for me. Well, I, I think, you know, that's a shadow of what's going on here with God and Israel. It's, you know, be ashamed because you, not just so you'll feel bad, but don't do this again. Um, and look at what I have for you. Uh, this is what I want to give you. So, uh, and he says in verse 11, and if they are ashamed of all that they have done, Make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Okay. If they're ashamed, then show them this. Why? Because again, if they realize they did something wrong, look, it's okay. I got this for you. This is going to be cool. You're going to have to wait, but this should give you some hope, give you, you know, something to anticipate, something to look forward to while you're going through this captivity. Um, but it says only if they're ashamed. Why? Because if they're not ashamed and they're not repenting, then why would why would God even bother telling them ab about this awesome thing? They, they, they wouldn't care about it. And it says, write it down in their sight so they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. How is that figurative? The Lord is saying directly, write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and its ordinances and perform them. This isn't some figurative thing. This is an actual thing that's going to happen. Uh, this, and then verse 12, this is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. And then it goes on to explain um, ordinances, uh, some more measurements and stuff. Uh, and even sacrifices. And, and that's usually the problem that allegorists will bring up. Well, if you're going to take the literal approach, you got to have sacrifices too. And Christ was sacrificed once for, you know, once for everybody, once for all. So 
how do you, you know, have, having uh, sacrifices in the millennium would be heresy. No, it's actually not. That that actually just shows a profound misunderstanding of what um, sacrifices were for. Sacrifices weren't for salvation. Um, and so we'll get into that. But you know what? I think it's about time that we move on to members-only content. Yes. Uh, so if you're not a member, you should head on over to dailyrenegade.com and become a member today. It is only $10 a month or $100 a year. Uh, there's also a link on the homepage to Cornerstone Asset Metals. You should check that out. Uh, this this whole B-System um, financial garbage that's going on in our world today is uh, stressful and tenuous to some, but you can actually protect your assets in uh, in metals. And there's, there's only one that I know that I can trust, and it's Cornerstone. So... You can check that out too. But uh, if you get a membership at dailyrenegade.com, not only will you get the rest of this episode, but all of our episodes that we provide from hosts like Gary Wayne, Brian Melvin, Michael Spaulding, and so much more. You'll find all of that at dailyrenegade.com. So uh, if you're watching this on the website, then just keep watching. We're going to get in the rest of it. If you're watching this on YouTube or Rumble or somewhere else, uh, then thank you so much for joining us. This has been the free portion and we're going to move on to members only. So please come and join the family. Uh, come join us at dailyrenegade.com. All right, everybody viewing for free. Thank you so much. Take care and God bless. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.